Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. We have just completed watching, or at least I have just completed watching all of the Sunday morning session of this semi-annual general conference, October 2023. President Oaks once again conducting and making the announcement that neither President Nelson nor Jeffrey Holland will be present, but assuring us that they are watching from home. I also, during music and the spoken word, or was it during the opening choir? Uh, I can't remember. I watched music and the spoken word because I was looking for Jim Bennett. He's way in the back. He says that the cameras rarely catch him because of the angles of the cameras, but I did see him. He was looking quite dashing in his suit and tie. So good on you, Jim Bennett. I appreciated your performance with the rest of the members of the choir. Now let's see here. What is it that happens? Okay, I'm going to I'm going to cut right to the chase, okay? I have been waiting and waiting and watching, as all of us have, for somebody to talk about this whole Tim Ballard situation. We knew it was going to be veiled. We didn't know how much it was going to be obvious. But although the name Tim Ballard was not mentioned, yeah, it was totally obvious. It's not the first talk. The first talk is given by the person who should be talking about Tim Ballard, and that is Elder Russell Ballard. M. Russell Ballard, the M for Melvin, he gives the opening talk. He should be talking about Tim Ballard and his business relationships with him, why it was that he felt it was appropriate to sign off on that excoriating uh, public statement the church issued back on September 15th, low these 16 days ago. But Elder M. Russell Ballard gets up. Everybody's wondering, what is he going to say? What is he going to say? Well, he says really a lot of nothing. He does say, uh, he starts talking about his eyes, right? And he can't really see the teleprompter. Um, he says, my eyes, he has glasses on, so I don't know what the problem is. But, you know, he is almost 94 years old, so um, it may be more than just vision. It could be things um, occluding that vision. He says, his eyes aren't what they used to be. He went to the doctor, said, I can't see the teleprompter. And the doctor said, well, you're old and they're not going to change. Okay, thanks, doc, for the help. He said he's been thinking about the prophet Joseph Smith for the past several months. I mean, when he hasn't been thinking about Tim Ballard and the mess he's in because of Tim Ballard, I'm sure he's been thinking about Joseph Smith. And he, oh, by the way, he also says he's been contemplating his Joseph Smith's contemplating his divine. And then he catches himself and says, no, not divine, but his glorious responsibility. Oops, that was Freudian. That was unfortunate. It's a good thing he prefaced it by saying that he's having trouble reading the teleprompter because apparently divine was not written on there, but his true feelings came out instead of what was written on the teleprompter. Joseph Smith's divine responsibility. Well, you know, it could be interpreted as being a divine responsibility because it was given to him from the divine, not because he's divine for having received it. So maybe it wasn't that big a noops after all. He talks about the first vision. I think we know the story. We don't have to repeat it here, although he thinks he does. He's speaking slowly and methodically now in his older age, but clearly, still quite clearly. He says, we thank the Lord for Joseph Smith and for his courage to go into that grove of trees in 1820 near his home in Palmyra, New York. I'm not sure what the courage was about. Maybe there were like monsters living in the grove of trees, but he went out there to pray. And according to Mormonism and the history of Mormonism, he got an answer. He got a really big answer from God and Jesus Christ showing up to talk to him. He says, all the marvelous things we know and have in the church are because of Joseph, 
who went into a grove of trees as a boy seeking relief, and he adds forgiveness for his sins. So he's going to go to the 1832 account, the only one that mentions Joseph going to seek forgiveness of sins. The later accounts where Jesus shows up and God show up, he's not talking about forgiveness of sins anymore. He's talking about going to the grove to ask which of the churches is true. He goes on to say, he, uh, President Ballard, one of the most wonderful things that anybody can know is that God and Jesus have revealed themselves in this latter day and that Joseph has been raised up to restore the fullness of the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay. Well, his testimony this morning is how abundantly blessed that we are to know all that we know because we have Joseph Smith, the prophet of this last dispensation of time. This is a very Joseph Smith focused talk. He talks about we have the Book of Mormon because of Joseph Smith. And he also says, my message this morning is simple and deep, and it's full of love for the prophet Joseph Smith. And for all those, my brothers and sisters, who are willing to sustain him in his youth, I've got to tell you, I can type pretty quickly, but not quick enough for a person speaking at a regular speed uh, for me to get down every word. He is speaking slowly enough that I can actually write down every word he says. Okay? And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing. That's why I have so many quotes from him, which I think will be pretty close to the actual printed text when it comes out. Now, interestingly, he pays tribute to Joseph's mother, Lucy Mack Smith, that when Joseph came back from the sacred grove and told his mother what had happened, she believed him. Now, in the first instance, I recognize that he's talking about his ancestors in terms of he's a descendant of Hiram Smith, at least on one side, I believe. And of course, Lucy Mack Smith is Hiram's mom, just the way she is Joseph Smith's mom. But I got confused here where he said that he honored her because she believed Joseph when he came back from the sacred grove and told his mother what had happened. Now, the reason that raises a question to me is I'm not sure where he's getting that. Because in Joseph Smith's 1838 account, where he actually talks about coming back from the grove, this is 18 years after the fact, he comes back from the grove and he goes into the house. His mom sees he doesn't look well. He says, um, uh, how are you doing? You don't look well. And all he tells her is, I've learned for myself that Presbyterianism is not true. In Joseph's official account, he doesn't say he told his mother what happened, which maybe shouldn't surprise us because after his death and not that many years after he dies in 1844, his mother, Lucy Mack Smith, writes her history of Joseph Smith. And strangely, in this entire book where she writes the history of Joseph Smith, the First vision account that Joseph told her impacted her so strongly that she doesn't even mention it in her book about Joseph Smith and about his spiritual experiences and about his prophetic calling. Not once. It's not even there. So actually, it looks like Joseph Smith probably never even told her about it. I mean, it's hard to imagine that Joseph tells her that God and Jesus showed up in the grove in answer to his prayer. And it doesn't make it into her book about Joseph as a prophet, but I suppose it could happen. But based on the historical evidence, the way I read it, it looks like not only did she not believe him, she didn't believe him because he never told her about it. Okay, so that's Lucy Mack Smith. He goes on to talk about uh, his testimony is that Jesus Christ is the Savior and Redeemer of the world. It's the same old stuff. That Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ appeared and spoke to Joseph. Once again, he keeps taking these... Um, these statements and repeating them throughout in very similar language. 
Uh, he wants to be, a, he encourages us to be a little better and be a little kinder every day. And I thought, mm, what about that statement you gave to the news 16 days ago that publicly accused Tim Ballard of being morally unacceptable? Was that being a little kinder every day, Elder Ballard? I don't know. Reasonable minds could differ maybe on that. He does give a sense, Elder Ballard does, of his realizing his own mortality. He is getting up there and talking about all the places he has visited in the world as a GA and thinks it is about all of them that he's visited. It's been a wonderful life. He leaves with his testimony, nothing about Tim Ballard, nothing even appears to be remotely addressing that situation. Now we get to the next speaker, who's Emily Bell Freeman, apparently the Young Women's General President. She tells a story about a trip where she went to Israel, and she wanted to walk this thing called the Jesus Trail. I'm guessing this is a guided tour where you walk where Jesus walked and look at the places where different events happened as recorded in the Gospels. I'm sure there's several of those that go on over there, and they're probably quite popular and profitable. But this Jesus Trail, she wants to go on, but she broke her foot. I think it was her foot. It could have been an ankle. Anyway, she broke something a month before she went, but she was determined that she was going to go anywhere e anyway, even though she's now on a scooter, one of those things that you have to use to get around if you've maybe broken your ankle or your foot. And the guide of this tour, whose name was Maya, she remembers that and uses her name, she said she didn't think that uh, Emily could do this, but Emily says nothing can stop her from trying. So she's got some true grit there. She's on a scooter. Maya says, okay, well, I'll help you out. And she ties a rope to the handles of Emily's scooter and pulls her along different places, even past the Sea of Galilee. That sounds like a lot of pulling for Maya on this rope. So the moral is that she thanked her guide for helping her do something she couldn't do alone, right? So we know where that's going, because that's like Jesus, who helps us do what we can't do alone, but we have to show up and we have to have the commitment to try, even though it's something that we can't do on our own power. She tells a number of stories. Um, this was not really a hugely memorable talk for me. She talks about the story of Jacob. That would be the Old Testament Jacob, who could have been satisfied with the knowledge of God like his forefathers had, but he chose instead to have a covenant relationship with God. That is something about this story. A lot of people mention that word covenant path and they try and, you know, get it into the talk because it's like the, what is it? That it's not the punchline, but it's the, um, the thing that president Nelson is big on. He didn't originate it, but he has made it very popular. He talks about it a lot. So all of his acolytes reflect it back to him that phrase, but this whole talk seems to be a talk that's built around this concept of the covenant path. Remember, she's going on this Jesus trail, a path, okay? So that's what she's going to do with that. She's not just going to mention the covenant path. She's going to design her entire talk around the subject. We keep our covenant with him, God, and he will keep his covenant with us and keep his promises, although she says in his own time. It's like we, when it comes to this covenant with God, it's kind of unequal. We're expected to, to do everything that we're supposed to do right now and for the rest of our life. And when it comes to the part that God's supposed to do, eh, he'll get around to it whenever. <laughs> Maybe not even while we're still in this life. The huge fail-safe there is if God can't get around to it now because he's helping all these people, I don't know, find their keys to their car. He can't get around to keeping his part of the covenant with us now. He'll get around to it in the next life after we're dead. But it's our job 
to continue on this covenant path while we wait upon God to fulfill his part of the bargain. That's not the way she put it, but that's the way I interpret it. Okay, then she uh, talks about a story of visiting the Western Wall in Jerusalem. Oh, this is another thing that was unusual about her story, uh, her talk. She mentions the temple garment, not once, but twice. How often does that happen in general conference? She talks about the garment of the Jewish people that they wear when they're visiting the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall of the, the temple, same thing, is a sign of their covenant. Their plea for a temple in their midst is made every day. See the connection she's going to make there. Several questions about keeping covenant, she asks, including why do I have to wear the holy garment? She walks the covenant path. She clings to covenant promises. She crosses the threshold to his holy house. And why she wears, and she wears the holy garment. She said it the second time as well. So her talk isn't about the garment, but she does mention it twice as part of this covenant and part of the covenant bath, which is the subject of her story. Then uh, back to her original story that she started with going to Jerusalem. Maya, remember, she's the guide. Maya didn't untie the rope from her scooter. So I guess she left it there. But later, her own boys, the speaker, Emily Bell Freeman's own boys, used that rope that was still tied around her handles of her scooter to pull her around in Jerusalem, apparently, while they were still on the trip. And she speaks to the rising generation about how wonderful and strong they are. Yep, strong enough to pull her around on the scooter, make that a spiritual message, and they're spiritually strong as well. So that concludes her talk. The next talk is by a member of the 70. And I have no idea how to pronounce this, so I'll do my best. Adelson de Paula Perella. Okay? I think that's uh, how you say his name. I'm not sure I'd heard of him before. Well, he quotes from Jesus in the Book of Mormon in 3 Nephi about, Have you not read the scriptures that you say you must, you must take upon you my name? Now, normally, I would just look at that and say, Yeah, of course I remember that from 3 Nephi when Jesus shows up to the Nephites and talks to them all. And he says, have you not read the scriptures that you must take upon you my name? But now, after I've had Jonathan, oh my gosh, am I going to totally forget his name? He's the individual who started on Mormonish with Rebecca Biblioteca. And uh, he even came on Mormonism Live to talk about the fact that the Book of Mormon presents a literate society. That's how the Book of Mormon is written. It presents the Nephites as a largely literate society and that is different from what we find in the archaeology from uh, the mayans which is where basically the only place the nephites could have existed because it's the only place that has any system of writing but it's a different kind of writing than we find in the book of mormon it's a uh, a preliminary kind of writing it's a more archaic kind of writing than what we find in the book of mormon and so when i read this or heard this from this elder that uh, Jesus talking to the Nephites about, have you not read the scriptures that you must say, take upon you my name, that say you must take upon you my name? I thought, it's a literate society. This is a scripture that shows how literate the society of the Nephites is. It's so literate that Jesus says, haven't you read the scriptures that say you must take upon you my name? Yeah. Okay, well, that would imply they can read. So that's going to keep developing. I think that uh, Brant Gardner has done a, a rebuttal of sorts to Jonathan. 
Well, maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe I can call out for help here. Let me see here. Come on, Rebecca, you're supposed to let me know who it is. I'm sorry, I'm having a um, one of those brain moments. Okay. Anyway, we have the privilege of being witnesses of the name of Jesus going on with the talk, wherever we are and to whomever we talk. Of course, we have to be good examples to the non-members. We, we know that. The Holy Ghost then can witness. Okay, hang on a second. I think we're getting this call in. Um, no, Lund, Lundwall. Yes, of course, Jonathan Lundwall. Excuse me. Sorry, Jonathan. Thanks, Rebecca. Whew. Um, the Holy Ghost then can witness to people that we have the true church of Jesus Christ. Yeah. But he introduces two recent stories. So story number one, his wife Elaine and he went to Spain in 2022. They attended church in a small unit. He says a small unit. I think he means a branch. Uh, leaders of the church talk about units and members talk about branches and wards, I guess. His wife sat beside an older woman in the congregation. So the 70, of course, is up on the stand because he's going to be presiding because he's the most senior person there. So he's got to sit on the stand. His wife is down there in the congregation. She's sitting next to this other woman. After the meeting's over, he goes down and talks to his wife and says, hey, who's this? Who's your new friend? And his wife, Elaine, introduces them and says that this is a woman who is not a member of the church, but she's been visiting the church for about two years. So the 70 asks this new lady, says, well, why have you been attending this church for so long? And she lovingly replied, there's a lot of lovingly replies in general conference. She replied, because you speak of Jesus Christ in your meetings. And I went, what? Are you kidding me? In the Mormon church? Yeah, they, they mention him now and again, but it's not like it's um, as much as other churches, I would presume, that don't deal with, you know, the divine Joseph Smith <laughs> and other things like that. But he says, uh, yeah, because you speak of Jesus Christ so much in your meetings. And so, okay, well, that's why she always went. It's because they always speak of Jesus Christ in their meetings. Now, the second story, which is going to use to compare with that story in Spain, is one in Utah. See, he, he got called to serve at church headquarters. He attends meeting at his new ward, which is obviously in Utah. There's a fast and testimony meeting, and members stood up and bore testimony. And at this point, I fully expected for this to be a contrast to the first story and how in that small branch over there in Spain, they talk about Jesus all the time, but not so much here in Utah. But no, he has the same experience in Utah. In fast and testimony meeting, the members stood up and bore heartfelt testimonies of the Savior, one after the other. I don't know what church he is describing, but it doesn't sound like the Mormon church that I've been attending, or at least up until I stopped attending, for 35 or 40 years. That was not my experience. Sure, you're going to hear Jesus mentioned now and then, but it's not like it's boom, 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 boom. I think this is more something he wants to encourage by pretending that that is the way it has happened. I don't know. Maybe it did happen. Uh, I guess it could. It's just not the norm in the LDS church. But then he goes into another story unrelated to that. Um, oh, and I also noted um, maybe these examples stand out to him because they are so unusual. Maybe that's why he remembers them and wants to use them. But then he tells another story. Um, he accompanies a guy named Jonathan Schmidt in I guess I'm supposed to know who that is, but I don't. But to the opening house of the Yuba City 
temple. He was guiding tours there, this fellow, the 70 who's speaking, and that he was in the temple sitting room. And a brother was expressing his gratitude for his friends. And this brother was somebody else who was named Virgil Atkinson. Some guy maybe from the community. But uh, Virgil Atkinson was expressing his gratitude for his friends who came today to the temple open house. Apparently they're around there with an earshot and a woman, one, one of his friends presumably, stood up and said, we all love Virgil. Saying he is faithful but never forces his beliefs on anyone. Now, that part right there is interesting, and I think that's important. And I think we all know people like that, and we appreciate people like that, people who have strong convictions, but also don't try and force those on you. Yeah, we appreciate that. Um, I think that sentiment could make its own talk in general conference, but it's just sort of going to be this little story that he will tell and then move on. He goes on, we bear witness of Jesus Christ by using the full name of the church. Of course, that's how we bear witness of Jesus Christ, by saying the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He refers to President Nelson's talk from 2018, saying we need to use the full name of the church. Of course, all the prophets before President Nelson got it wrong, didn't they? And isn't he an amazing prophet? I mean, really. So um, the speaker, whoever it is he's talking to, has to focus on using the correct and full name of the church. And actually, he's talking about himself. He, he said it took some training. And some time for him to get into that habit because he's so used to saying the Mormon church or the LDS church or whatever common substitute he used. He goofed it up several times by force of habit, he says. He would say the name quickly when he's saying the whole name. He would say it quickly because he wants to get through it because he thinks it's long and cumbersome. And not without reason, I might add. But he realized then <clears throat> that just saying the name of the church gave him the chance to bear testimony of Jesus and the church. So apparently just saying the name of the church, you're bearing testimony now, both of Jesus and of the church as well. And he closes then with his testimony in this order. After this entire talk about talking about Jesus, talking about Jesus, talking about Jesus, and Jesus is numero uno, he closes his testimony by testifying in this order, number one, that President Nelson is a prophet. Number two, the church is true. And finally, number three, that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, I found that amusing. Now we get to Quentin L. Cook. He will talk. And um, let's see what the heck he's talking about here. He starts by talking about how we live in a time of challenges. He's getting older too, which he's reflecting on by remarking that his wife Mary and he have seen in the last several years lots of close associates pass away. Yeah, that will happen starting to happen to me. Some who have been raised in faith have stepped off the covenant path. Mm. And some have endured significant health challenges. Right. This is going to be a talk apparently about when bad things happen to good people, I noted here. And also, this is the other side of the coin. I mentioned this yesterday. This is the other side of the coin of the talks that say, if you are obedient, you will be happy. We had two of those yesterday. They were virtually identical. If you follow the LDS plan and follow all the commandments in the LDS church, you will be happy. If you don't, you will be unhappy. But now we get to the other talks that I told you about that compete with those, even within the same general conference, that what do you do when you are faithful, but bad things still happen to you? What do you do with that? In other words, what do you do when you find out 
that the two talks that were given yesterday are not always true. In fact, are frequently not true. That you can live the gospel to the best of your ability and you can still not be happy. What do you do with that? So Quentin Elcook comes to back clean up on that. And he says, uh, let's see, he quotes Abraham chapter three about how we are here to see if we will do all things whatsoever the LDS church. I mean, the Lord God shall command us. We strive to live the, the Lord's commandments. It wasn't easy for Jesus and it isn't easy for us. In spite of the fact that I think Jesus said somewhere, take upon me my yoke for, you know, it's easy and my burden is light. But not in the LDS church. That yoke is pretty darn heavy in the LDS church, regardless of what Jesus says in the New Testament. He gives a story from 1829 before the church was organized. He quotes some of the revelations that were received by Joseph Smith before that. Talking about fear not, little flock, do good. Let earth and hell combine against you. For if you are built upon my rock, you cannot fall. And also our heavenly destiny, he says, is not altered when we suffer adversity. This is something he said, Elder Cook said. Our heavenly destiny is not altered when we suffer adversity. But I thought the only way we could find true happiness is by living the LDS religion. Now compare those two items together, and you'll see that they're flip sides of the same coin. They actually contradict each other. The first thing he says is our heavenly destiny, which would be heaven. Presumably, our heavenly destiny is not altered when we suffer adversity. But the other thing we heard yesterday was the only way we find true happiness is by living the LDS religion. <clears throat> Okay, trials are a part of mortality and occur to everyone throughout the world. So we're not alone in it. It happens to everybody. I just thought that if you live the LDS church, you were going to be happy. <laughs> he actually asks the question about why do bad things happen to good people? And why are those in God's service not immune to such, trage to such tragedies? And then he answers by saying, we don't know the answer to these things. Well, it sure is a good thing to have a living prophet on the face of the earth, isn't it? So that they can know the answers to things. We got 15 of them. They don't know the answers to these things. They admit it. We don't know the answers to these things. And then he says, but we face these things with faith. Okay. Of course, he quotes God to Joseph Smith from Liberty Jail about how all these bad things that have been happening to you, Joseph, will give you experience, shall be for thy good. The Son of Man hath descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? Who do you think you are complaining when Jesus has suffered more than you? And then he gets, unsurprisingly now, to the new second edition of Preach My Gospel. He was really, really all over the social media um, talking about how great this new missionary discussion book is. He seems to say the second edition does a better job of emphasizing the role of Jesus Christ than the first edition. As we are faithful, Jesus will make everything unfair about life right through his atonement. So he'll make everything that's wrong in our life right, except when he doesn't. Finally, he says that all wrongs will be righted after death. Okay, I got it. I got it. Okay, so even if Jesus doesn't make everything wrong right through the atonement in our life, he will make everything wrong right when we're dead. Got it. That's always the out card. I'm hearing it quite a few times in this general conference. And another thing that's interesting here is that Elder Cook says something is clear three times that I counted in this talk. And those are things that are basically faith propositions. They're not demonstrable in any way. 
Uh, one of them, he says that it is clear that Heavenly Father loves his children. Is it though? Is it clear that he loves his children? Or is this a faith-based proposition that he's saying it is clear in order to make it sound stronger and more foundational and more buttressed and supported than it really is? But he does it three other times. I didn't catch the other two exactly what he said, but that was one that he said. And you can go back and look through it and see what the others are. But it's one of those things where somebody says, it is clear that. And when you say it is clear that, it's usually because it's not clear that. You know what I mean? You're trying to argue for your position by saying it's clear that even when it's not. All right. Now we get to the part about following the words of the prophets. That is how we prepare for the challenges we will face. I told you yesterday, I'll tell you again, every talk in general conference, just like every road leads to Rome, every talk in general conference leads to following the words of the prophets. The leaders of the church are the ones who must be followed. And this talk is no exception because it's here where we get to the part about following the words of the prophets. That's how we prepare for the challenges we will face. I got to give him extra credit for quoting from a much unused section of the Doctrine and Covenants at section 136, the only one received by Brigham Young out there at Winter's Quarters as an example of how the Lord prepares the saints for the challenges we will face. So I got to give him credit for that. That was an unusual choice. From this section, he says that we should praise the Lord with singing and dance. I'm behind that. And we should pray unto the Lord in our tribulations. Those tribulations that aren't supposed to be coming on us because God is going to take care of us when we follow his commandments. But sometimes he doesn't get around to it till after we die. So until then, we're kind of on our own. Okay, now the choir sings, Come Ye Children of the Lord. Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf, the Silver Fox, is up next. And he opens by saying, President Ballard, you may not have 2020 physical eyesight, but you have 2020 spiritual sight. Oh my gosh. I know he's trying to turn a phrase, and he usually does it really good. And this would be fine, except for the fact that Tim Ballard is hovering over this whole conference like a specter, especially when it comes to M. Russell Ballard. So if it should turn out, as I suspect, that the reason Elder Ballard and the church ran Elder Ballard so fast and so far away from Tim Ballard 16 days ago in that September 15th statement from the church, the reason for that is, is because Elder Ballard is up to his eyeballs in the questionable business dealings of Tim Ballard. They're worried that if Tim Ballard goes down, he's going to drag Elder Ballard down with him. That's why they're running away as fast as he can. So under these circumstances, under these circumstances, it may not have been the best move by Elder Uchtdorf to congratulate President Ballard on having 2020 spiritual sight or vision. <laughs> oh, yeah, these prophets, they can see around corners, all right. Okay, now he gets to his talk. And this is a sermon. He gives a sermon. This is not a talk Elder Uchtdorf gives. And even though I don't really cotton to the underlying message of his talk because the underlying message of his talk is if you've left the church then you know come back come back it's kind of like he did before a few years ago which was um well whatever it was that was a number of years ago where he talked about people leave the church for good reasons 
the one that also had doubts your doubts before you doubt your faith, the part that got quoted a lot more. But what he's doing here is he's using the parable of the prodigal son, and that becomes immediately obvious. But he doesn't just say what the parable is. He doesn't read it out of the scriptures like we've heard a million times. He performs the story of the prodigal son. He sermonizes the story. It takes his entire talk. He doesn't use this talk and then use the parable and then talk about it. The parable is his talk. And he does a wonderful job with his great and wonderful Teutonic accent. So, you know, uh, let me just go through it real quick, uh, hitting some of his points. A certain man had two sons, parable, okay, it's the prodigal son. He wants to leave the family, the son does, and perhaps never return. The son could finally live his life without following the directions of his parents. He could live life on his own terms. You know, all you people leaving the church wanting to live the life on your own terms, that's a bad thing. Don't want people telling you what to do. That's a bad thing. You need to have people tell you what to do and not live life on your own terms. Because if you do that, this is what's going to happen. All right. Uh, I think we can see where this is going, even if we hadn't read the parable. So this kid, he makes new friends. He lives life the way he'd always dreamed, spent his money, and his friends applauded his choices. If he had social media, he would have been doing hashtag living my best life and hashtag I should have done this long ago. <laughs> that was funny, except for the point he's making, which is those who leave the church to live their own life and who are talking about how wonderful it is, actually, they're not being honest. They're not really living their best life. Or maybe they think they are, but they're headed for a fall. And now this former high roller, this kid with the money from his inheritance who'd been going out living up life and having all these friends because he has money to spend on them, now he can't afford a single meal and his friends turn away from him. This sounds like Timon of Athens to me, which a Shakespeare play where the same kind of thing happens. That's the plot. Because now his friends turn him away and will not give him any money. They abandon him. So he finds a local farmer who hired him to feed swine wasn't just an empty stomach that troubled him. It was an empty soul. That's the problem when you leave the church. You don't just have an empty stomach. You have an empty soul. But how could he return after all he had done? See, now he's putting the situation where he presumes that people who leave the church are there, you know, living with the pigs in the mud and eating the corn husks. But how can he return home? He wants to pave the way for them to come back. I don't know why he thinks they're listening to General Conference, but this is his message to him. You know, how do you come back from that? And then he takes it, he looks at it from the father's point of view and how much this father had thought of his son and how much the father wanted his son to be safe. Every day he's thinking about his son. Every day he's worried about him. Every day he's praying for his well-being and that he would discover the truth and that he would return because he's got to return home. That's the best place for the son. Not out there in the world, but here at home, excuse me, where he can be supervised and where he can have family home evening and go to seminary. One day, the father looks out on the lonely road that leads home and sees a figure walking toward him. Could it be his son? Yes, it is. 
And I, I wrote here, Elder Uchtdorf is doing a good job of not just reading the parable, but filling it out and elaborating, elaborating upon it and bringing it to life. He shows a nice painting that he has about the prodigal son. And of course, then he goes to the older son who is in the painting in the background. He talks about this older son having emotional baggage that he's carrying. And he represents his side too. I've been faithful. You've never lavished anything on me, Pops. Why are you giving the fatted calf and your ring and your sandals and your cloak to this kid who went and did you dirty the way that he did while I've been faithful? It's a legitimate question. And Elder Uchtdorf's response is from the father, this isn't about rewards. This is about healing. Okay, well, when you give all the rewards to the guy who didn't earn them, that's going to make it hard for the, the older brother to heal, all right? So this is one of the things that's wonderful about this parable is that it's so challenging on multiple levels, like a good parable should be. It doesn't provide easy answers. It raises difficult questions. That's what a parable should do, in my opinion, and that's what this one does. It's a very good parable. And this ties, I was thinking as I he was performing this parable, I was saying, you know, this kind of ties into the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. That's the one where there's uh, a guy's in a work line and um, somebody else is working in a vineyard. They come hiring people in the morning and every hour they hire a new one until all the way to the end of the day. And so the ones they hired first work the whole day, the next a little bit less, the next a little bit less until you get down to the last people they hired who only work one hour in the vineyard on this particular day and they all get paid a penny. They all get paid the same. And the people who are there the whole day Say, why are you paying me a penny when you're paying the same guy, the same penny to a guy who only worked here for an hour? I worked here the whole day. That's not fair. That's a good parable, too, because, yeah, we can understand why he's uh, talking that way or why he'd have that opinion. But this parable actually takes that concept from the laborers in the vineyard even further because the parable of the prodigal son seems to reward or pay even more the people who have worked the least. So with the prodigal son, he gets the, the fatted calf, he gets the party, he gets the ring from his dad, he gets the cloak, he gets the sandals from his dad, he gets everything. He's not getting paid the same as his elder brother. He's getting paid more. It's like in the uh, parable of the, the laborers in the vineyard, it's as if the guy who worked there all day gets a penny, and the guy who works there only an hour gets 10 of them, right? So that's why I think the prodigal son parable takes the labors in the vineyard parable and it ups the ante and it makes the contrast even more stark. This is why it's so challenging, which all good parables should be to make us think. Now he applies this parable to those who have left the church, of course, we could see this coming. And he looks at it from their point of view. How can I return? How will the Lord react? This parable tells us heaven will rejoice at our return. And now he wants to speak to the people who have left the church individually. Once again, I'm not sure how he expects them to get the message unless they're tuning into general conference or unless they've got a family member who's going to send them the talk. That happens. So he wants to speak to them individually. He's going to quote from Jeffrey R. Holland. Jeffrey R. Holland does get a few pity quotes in this conference. 
And by that, I just mean because he's not there. So they want to make a point of quoting from him. And uh, of course, President Nelson gets by far the most. He's never going to be surpassed in the number of quotations in general conference. But Jeffrey R. Holland comes in second. And he says, um, no matter what has happened, and then he quotes Jeffrey R. Holland, his good friend, it is impossible for you to sink lower than the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ shines. He says, please come back. Your return will not diminish the blessings of others. Okay. I do not pretend coming back is an easy thing to do. It may, in fact, be the toughest choice you will ever make. But I bear witness that the moment you decide to do so, Jesus' power will enter your heart and transform it. It was a well-delivered talk. It was well-crafted. He did an excellent job. He is the silver fox for a reason. But again, just like I said when he gave that other talk about doubts or doubts, but saying that there are reasons for people to leave, and even good reasons, but inviting them back at the end of that talk, this whole talk is about inviting people back. And I have to say now, as I said then, if people leave the church because of things the church does or says or has done or has said, how does it make sense to ask them to come back to church if you don't change the things that made them leave in the first place? That's my question. And that is ultimately why I think that this talk is probably not going to go anywhere. People leave for a reason. Most of us do. And the reason that we're gone is because of that. And we're not going to go back unless that gets taken care of in some way to our satisfaction, whatever that way might be. Okay. Then it's Bishop W. Christopher Waddle. I almost always say Waddell, but I think it's Waddle. Fresh from his appearance on 60 Minutes, and he's going to give the Tim Ballard talk. Yes. He gets it. Let me see here. But I'm not going to close with that because that is really the, the high point of this session of General Conference. It's not the concluding talk, though. The concluding speaker is President Henry B. Eyring, and believe it or not, he is not the high point of this session of General Conference. So let me just go through very quickly President Henry B. Eyring, who is also speaking very slowly, but very clearly, and I can keep up with him when I'm typing too. He frames his talk as a brief letter to his descendants for whom he is not there personally to help them. In other words, he's passed away. He's got descendants or children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and so on down the line. He's not going to be there to help them. Uh, presumably, they could read his conference addresses, and that would be as helpful as giving another conference address that's addressed to them to help them when he's not around. And especially because this Conference address is pretty much the same thing as everything he's ever said in conference. He always talks about this. It's rare that he doesn't talk about the Holy Ghost and feeling the spirit and how we can tell when the Holy Ghost is with us. And it's so great to have the Holy Ghost guide us and all of those things. He wants to speak about his personal experience of inviting the Holy Ghost to be his constant companion so that they may do the same. Oh, let's see here. You know, I'm worried about boring you by going through all of these notes because there's really not that much here. I mean, I, I've got the outline of his his talk. Um, we can learn things by the Spirit. He uses the story of Nephi and Laban because, of course, Nephi was guided by the Spirit when he went into Jerusalem, the, Jerusalem that night, not knowing beforehand the things which he should do. And uh, he quotes about, I will go, I will do the things the Lord commands. I know the Lord provides a way. He wants me to obey. That's the song from Primary. And then he quotes about that uh, 
He was led by the spirit, Nephi was, not knowing beforehand the things which I should do. He breaks off the story before Nephi finds Laban, thankfully, because we know where all this is leading, and he knows where it's all leading, leading but he's not going to complete the story because the story is that Nephi was guided by the spirit minute by minute, and it all ended in a pool of Laban's blood spurting from his headless body. That's what happens when you follow the spirit, not knowing beforehand what it is you should do. He says, when we make mistakes that offend the spirit, the spirit is very offended. He's very easily offended. He's like a pearl-clutching elderly woman who gets offended at the, the slightest thing and will leave. Um, I would prefer to have a hardier spirit, more like Falstaff, perhaps, who's going to hang around and have a good time and not be so easily offended. Does anybody like somebody who's easily offended? Aren't they a pain to be around? Yeah, you know those people. I know those people. And apparently the spirit, the Holy Ghost, is one of those people. But of course, when we make mistakes that offend the spirit, we feel disapproval from the Lord. We may feel alone. But we just need to repent and get back on the straight and narrow. If you have felt the Holy Ghost today, you may take it as a sweet evidence that the Holy Ghost is working in your life. If. Well, it's just really Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost. This does, does seem to be one of President Eyring's favorite subjects. He returns to it so often. He tells a story about the Holy Ghost working, which I presume is largely apocryphal. There are no names, no way to check it out. But here's the story. It's kind of a modest story anyway. He gets a phone call from a distraught mother. The daughter has moved far from home. Mom thinks something's terribly wrong with the daughter. She pleads with Elder Eyring to help her. Is this a, a member of a ward when he's a bishop? He doesn't say. So President Eyring finds out who her home teacher was, the daughters, called him, and the home teacher says, hey, guess what? Craziest thing just happened that me and my companion, my home teaching companion, we were awakened at night. Uh, presumably, they're not sleeping together. They're in different homes, but they're awakened at the same time at night, and they have concern for this girl, this daughter that President Irene's calling him about. And not only just concerned for her, but they both had the impression that she was about to make choices that would bring her sadness and misery. Now, he doesn't say what those choices are, but I think we all have an idea. So these home teachers, they go to see her. At first, she didn't tell them about her situation. And I'm saying, what is it? What is her situation? We never get to find out. But they told her to repent and choose the right path. And then she realized, President Irene thinks by the spirit she realized, but then she realized, wait a second, how do these guys know what I'm going through to come over here and talk to me about it unless it was from God? And I guess we don't get to hear the end of the story or what happened to this daughter, um, but we are left to presume it was a happy ending. Uh, President Eyring then reads from Doctrine and Covenant section 121, and says, the Holy Ghost is being sent to the faithful covenant members of the Church of Jesus Christ. Your experiences will be unique, but suited to your capacity to receive revelation. This is another example of talking about the Holy Ghost will be there. And uh, I can't tell you how you're going to receive it. It'll be unique to you. It'll be suited to your capacity to receive revelation. So the Holy Ghost can only talk to you as much as you're ready to hear. So it sounds like a big nothing promise to me. 
there's no way to measure whether it's been fulfilled because there are so many outs here and there and everywhere that it ends up basically becoming meaningless. He bears his testimony, and that's the end of the Sunday morning session, but we have one more talk, and this is the big one. Bishop W. Christopher Waddell. Fresh from his appearance on 60 Minutes, like I said, this is the Tim Ballard talk. It is Sunday morning notice, which is Gen Con primetime. This is the one that most people tune in to watch, the Sunday morning session of General Conference, and they have the Tim Ballard talk front and center here. Also in the same session that M. Russell Ballard spoke in, coincidentally. So he starts off by talking about the handcart company, the William Martin handcart company. We all know the story. This one is largely apocryphal. Unfortunately, it wasn't apocryphal about all the suffering that happened to the members of the Willie Martin Handcart Company. But they end up getting saved, at least those who are saved, by uh, teams that were sent out by Brigham Young from Salt Lake. It took two, two days for them to hit the road after Brigham Young got word. And uh, he talks about Ephraim Hanks. Okay, so his talk is now going to segue into heroes. That's the subject of his talk, heroes. Heroes like Tim Ballard. He's not going to say Tim Ballard, but really, he doesn't have to. It's clear enough to everyone, I think. Everyone has been paying any attention to what's been going on for the last couple of weeks. Talks about Ephraim Hanks, who was one of these people who went out to help him, and he was just such a great, great hero. And he claims that there were blessings uh, that were given to those who were on the verge of death in the Willie Martin Handcart Company when they got there, and they rallied almost at once. Okay, so he sets up Ephraim Hanks as a hero and then starts talking about heroes. He starts talking about secular heroes, heroes in sports, heroes in politics, heroes here, heroes there. Heroes, hmm, like Tim Ballard. He says that when he was a kid, his first heroes were athletes. And that for children, hero worship hero worship can be fun, but the degree to which they are revered, these heroes, if taken to excess, can be the equivalent of the children of Israel worshiping the golden calf. This is the theme that he weaves throughout his talk. Don't worship heroes. Worship Jesus. If you worship anybody or anything other than Jesus and make that your hero, then you're going to be in trouble. I hope you're listening in Russell Ballard. <laughs> this can become a stumbling block to worshiping the Lord. These heroes become their idols. Their focus on the golden calf was a stumbling block to entering the promised land. Our hero is Jesus Christ, and any other thing or person we substitute can block our way to Jesus. And that was right when I said, this is the Tim Ballard talk. <laughs> now, he starts talking about all the great stuff Jesus has done to save us. There's a lot of that. He can be tempting to turn. It can be tempting to turn to society's heroes. This is fine for a temporary diversion, but we must be cautious. It does not become our golden calf. <clears throat> Tim Ballard. Then he quotes Elder Maxwell. If you have not chosen the kingdom of God first, it will in the end make no difference what you have chosen instead. Any other choice than Jesus is choosing the arm of flesh and will ultimately fail us. He talks about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All choosing the right thing. They didn't worship that golden idol of the king. No, 
and they were saved by God when they were thrown into the furnace. So he concludes by saying, there may be God's many and heroes many that we are invited to bow down to and embrace, but it must always be Jesus, 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 not Tim Ballard. Do not fall down and embrace Tim Ballard. Fall down and embrace M. Russell Ballard, who is the representative of Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We choose Jesus when we honor his day. We choose Jesus when we follow his prophets. Well, wait a second. Doesn't that kind of make the prophets a golden calf? Well, it might, but that's not where he's going with his talk. So, Bishop W. Christopher Waddell gets to give the Tim Ballard talk. He drew the short stick. He had to appear on the 60 Minutes piece to talk about the, the church's finances. And he draws the short stick again when he has to give the Tim Ballard talk. But there it is, Sunday morning session, Bishop Waddell gives the Tim Ballard talk, and then it's buffered at the end by a completely forgettable talk by President Henry B. Eyring. All right. So here we are. That's the end of the Sunday morning talk. It's been a great, great session. I've had a lot of fun. Well, I, had, I suffered through it. Okay. But I've had a lot of fun recapping it for you. That much is true. You'll see that today is August 1st. We have a little bit of Hall Halloween decorations now out in the underground bunker. I've got a nice candle that's going here. It's got a wonderful scent, beautiful ambiance for the month of October. And my friend, the Headless Horseman statue here. Uh, someday I will tell you all about my connections with the Headless Horseman as a kid and why it is that it's so meaningful to me, especially at this time of year. But this is the end of the Sunday morning session. Please hit like. Please subscribe to this channel. Please do it right now. If you like me, you'll do that. If you don't like me, I hope you'll do it too. But I will be seeing you in about another three hours right after the fifth and final session of General Conference. And then my work here will be done. My promise to you will be fulfilled. And we will all go home feeling much better about ourselves. All right. That's about all for here. Until next time.